Want to be a part of the conversation? Then let us know on the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk, TNT Radio. This is the Dean Mackin Show on today's news talk, TNT Radio. And welcome back to the program. Don't forget, Chris Smith will be returning to TNT tomorrow. So I know a lot of you will be hanging for that. And he's uh, been on holidays. I've been following him around on Facebook, checking out he's been up in Yamba, having a whale of a time. He's been enjoying himself. But uh, all good things must come to an end. The holiday that being, but of course, terrific things. Chris Smith returning to TNT tomorrow. And of course, speaking about terrific things, uh, terrific things or poor people, I'll get the word out eventually. Uh, Gemma Cooper will be joining us imminently as well. Now, some of the guests we got this hour include Dr. Claire Craig, and uh, we're going to be talking about Ireland. Now, during the pandemic, Ireland had no excess deaths. None, not during the pandemic. And we're going to find out if that is the case in other places or was it just Ireland? That'll be very interesting. The other person that we'll be talking to is Nina Jane Patel. She's a researcher, a futurist, and uh, somebody I'll be talking to about what happened in the metaverse. And yes, I, I was telling people I bought my son a VR headset. Well, he's had several. Uh, that's probably his third or fourth. But this one in particular is the one that's designed to get you into augmented reality via Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse. And I don't think the metaverse is going to take off, personally. Um, the only people really buying these things typically are, are young males who want to play games on them because you can plug them in to, uh, you know, things like Steam and whatever and play a whole range of video games that are terrific. I don't think uh, most of the people buying these are wanting to get into the metaverse and have a virtual cup of coffee or hang out in the virtual cafe with their friends. That is the last thing on their mind. They play games, they run around with virtual guns, shooting each other in arenas while they're talking to their mates and having a good old time. That's what most people are going to be doing it for. So Mark Zuckerberg has backed the wrong horse there. But unfortunately, you're going to get creeps. You're going to get creeps. Yeah, adult males typically who are going to get these things and think, well, gee, I wonder if there are any young impressionable children I can take advantage of using this VR headset. And unfortunately, that has been the case already. This thing only just being released, literally only just being released. They're calling it a virtual rape, a virtual rape. I don't know. Um, I've, I've seen some of the details of this. I don't know if the wording is correct, but we're going to get into that with Nina Jane Patel. But I tell you what, expect that this is a, a phrase, a terminology you're going to be hearing a lot more of in the future. Uh, things that they'll be looking at doing, possibly because we are in lockstep everywhere, but this certainly happened. Any of you that have been to Australia who have been to the Gold Coast will have been to SeaWorld. Terrific place and only a couple of months before this happened, I had gone on one of these helicopters with my son. We had a, a great old time cruising around the, the Gold Coast in a helicopter. These things just up and down all day. They just run nonstop all day. And they were typically without incident until, of course, about a year ago when two of them collided. I don't know how that happens. Typically, you would think, you know, one comes in at one angle and it takes off in the other and they shouldn't be flying towards each other, but it did. Uh, and of course, there's been a very thorough investigation into this. They're finding, of course, now, in fact, I'll read part of it, traces of cocaine found in SeaWorld helicopter pilot system after fatal cr crash could lead to increased testing regulations. I don't know how you feel about that. I think it's a one-off incident and uh, he was on cocaine. I will say that it wasn't like he was on rohypnol or LSD or some sort of downer 
So I don't know how much that would have had to do with the actual incident. Typically, if people are on upper drugs, they tend to be more alert, do they not? But then again, had he or anybody taken an upper and are on the downside of that trend, that could well lead to inattentiveness and whatever. But uh, there's a good chance, certainly up in Queensland, in Australia, that you could be subjected to these things if you are any kind of pilot, be it plane, helicopter or otherwise. I think that is probably where we're heading. I just will give a young 16-year-old, he's, uh, he's from the UK, they're calling him the Nuke, uh, his name is Luke Littler, and at just 16 years of age, he has reached the World Darts Championship final final with a victory over a guy named Rob Cross. Now, it wasn't that long ago that Emma Raducanu, I hope I did get the pronunciation of that right, she won the US Open when she was only 18. I mean, this will be tantamount to that 16 years of age, not even a man, many would argue, but certainly I would argue he is a man if he's accomplished that. Uh, he's just got there a little bit earlier than most. So I, I'm wishing him well as that goes on over in the UK. And I know a lot of you people over there would be absolutely over the moon about that and very proud of this particular young fellow. And uh, it is at this point that I shall imminently cross to the wonderful, but not yet, I've got to do this first. Um, uh, Gemma Cooper, are you enjoying today's news talk, TNT? Well, do you think that we're doing a good job? Then if you do, please let us know. You can do that by leaving us a like or a positive review on Facebook, Gab, or Getter, and help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time here at today's news talk, TNT. Talk that matters. For once, we just need to do what's best for this damn country and not what's best for the world. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Gemma Cooper, hello. Hello. Yeah, that story about the uh, 16-year-old, he's going to be, if he wins, even if he doesn't win, I mean, the semi-final of the darts, you know, that's a huge deal here in the UK. And his, his little face, well, it's not that little actually, but it's been <laughs> plastered. It's little, no. <laughs> no. Uh, but it's plastered all over the, the papers. I mean, he will be the hottest 16-year-old in the in the country. You know, he'll have every other 16-year-old girl running after him, you know, wanting to date him. I mean, <laughs> it's just great. It's just great. Good for him. It just goes to show, doesn't it? Because darts is traditionally, you know, it's a working-class sport. Um, you know, it's it well, it's kind of it wasn't looked down on, but it's kind of got that particular kind of um sort of legacy that comes with it. Um, but you know, it's become huge. Huge. It's always been huge, but it's just become huger. Um, and it's just great. It's just great to see 16. Just goes to show success can arrive in any area of your life. You know, if you just work hard and focus, you will get the results. And it's funny, you know, some people would argue that, you know, darts is doing that for him. I would argue he's doing that for darts. He's going to raise the profile of darts. He's already a rock star just accomplishing that. And if he wins, but, you know, the ultimate final, this guy is just going to be an absolute rock star. There will be nowhere in the UK or Ireland or in the whole of the EU where he can go and not be recognised. So a big future ahead for that young man. <laughs> yeah, excuse me. Absolutely. So I've got a bit of a frog in my throat this morning. I don't know if it's going to, I don't know if I'll last. Hang on. There we go. Let's see if that makes that any better. Yeah, but he does. He has a... <clears throat> Excuse me. He has a huge future ahead of him. And yeah, he's done a lot for the sport. If it encourages other young people to focus on sports that they're passionate about, it means that sport can become something of a profession for many, many people. You don't have to be necessarily physically massively fit. You just have to focus and work hard and you will get get the results. So yeah, he's done a lot for the sport. He really has. He's really thrust it onto the world stage. He's made it cool. He's made it cool.
Now, a question I've got to ask you, because I do like to uh, pamper the, the headlines that are happening over in the UK. Uh, the doctors out on strike at the moment. When it was more critical that they striked, uh, and they never did it here, they just succumbed to the narrative, um, were any of them out striking against, you know, these possible vaccine mandates or uh, what was happening over in the UK at the time with uh, doctors and nurses? We did. We had a huge backlash. We had uh, what became known as NHS 100K, and that was what the 100,000 plus NHS staff that said, absolutely, we are not taking these vaccines. We are not adhering to this so-called mandate. And they stood up against the government and the government dropped the mandates for NHS staff uh, to have the experimental injection. They all stood together. Um, I think they because when you're in the NHS, you know, there are, there are a lot of good doctors, you know, and one of them really did stand up to the health secretary when he was doing a walk around of hospitals at the height of the madness. And this consultant just stood up and said, you know, you're your disgrace. Um, what about consent? We're not having this. Um, and, and they galvanized right across the country, stood up to the system and the mandates were dropped. So, yeah, that was a strike of sorts. It was a moral and ethical strike. And they won. They won. They absolutely won. But you're quite right. Today, junior doctors are walking out uh, for six days and it will be the longest strike in the history of the NHS. And, and just yesterday, they have, they've tried to hang the excess death figures on the strikes, you know, even though this, this particular strike hasn't happened. We talked about this, didn't we? Yeah, that yeah. the excess death figures for last year came out. And so they blamed it conveniently on a series of walkouts over the last few months. Well, we all know that's not the case, but they are going to obviously hang excess deaths now on this six day walkout. You can see the headlines coming already. That That's yep. exactly what the government will do. It's very op opportunistic. And uh, as soon as I said the word opportunistic, I mean, I, I have to tell you something. You people in the UK will freak out when you hear this. There was, uh, when I first read about it, before I spoke about it on air where I was at the time, I thought, I've got to check this. If I get this wrong, it's going to be really bad. There was a, a law, a law that said doctors could op opportunistically give people the vaccine while they were under anaesthetic. These would have been people like me who said, Absolutely not. I will never have that ever. And if I had to go in and have some sort of medical procedure, they knew that I was unvaccinated. They were allowed under law to opportunistically administer a vaccine. And I had to check that. I had to actually go on the government website and check that was the case. That's one of the most horrific things that I was ever aware of here in Australia. Um, talk about informed consent. There was no consent and there was no in information. But um, just that word opportunistic uh, reminded me of that because we were talking about this. But just I've paid uh, homage to, if you will, the, the doctors over in the UK and the nurses who stood up for themselves. They didn't do it en masse here in Australia. And uh, most of those doctors and nurses still finding themselves out of a job. Yeah, well, that is, that's the travesty, isn't it? It's the absolute travesty of what happened. I mean, it is four years now, 2020, we're now in 2024, year on year, that's four years since the madness. But just hearing you talk then that the, the doctor could opportunistically stick something in your body without any kind of consent, let alone informed, you know, it's it's a form of, I don't know how to use this word, but it talks about the virtual rape. It's a form of psychic rape. You know, your, your energy field is being invaded while you're unconscious. It's and we, you know, let's not forget that. Let's not forget what they did. Let's not forget what the system did. It lined up in lockstep against us all globally, and 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 and, and assaulted us on every level, physically, emotionally, spiritually, you know, morally. We cannot forget that. And and you know, because it won't be long before in lockstep, it'll be something else. You know, it'll be something else where they try and enforce a global kind of behavior pattern of control upon us. It's it. it it, we know that. We don't know what it's going to be, but it'll be something. And this time we're ready. This time we're galvanized. That's the main thing. 
It really is horrific, especially after, I mean, not that I'm saying I believe this, uh, another one of our announcers who I, I won't name uh, posted a, a, a very popular doctor who, again, I won't name, who said that she believes that anyone who's had an mRNA vaccine will die within three to five years. And again, I'm not advocating that. I don't believe that is the case at all. But just to hear that, if you were one of those people who were opportunistically injected, thinking that could be the case, and you could imagine that your mind would run amok. Um, it's just really horrific. It's also horrific to hear not just that particular female doctor, but a couple of uh, male uh, doctors who are immensely more qualified than her have made the same predictions within that sort of time period. I pray that is not the case. I don't personally believe that is the case. But just to hear that would be uh, would be rather confronting, especially if you've got friends or, or relatives that may have undergone the procedure. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I would hope that that's not the case because, you know, if that did happen and everyone that's had one died within three to five years, collectively, the entire human race would go, oh, my God. So I don't think that that will happen. Uh, I think that's a kind of scaremongering, fear-based kind of headline. I would hope it doesn't happen because I know many, many people who I'm close to who did go and undergo the procedure. Um, I, I hope that that is not the case. Uh, it would be the biggest wake-up call humanity has ever seen, but it would be a global tragedy so let's let's hope those that prediction is 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 not correct uh, i do think though i'll just touch on the story well, um, Gemma, you... Gemma, i do need to get to a break we're having a technical technical issue with your side of things i'm getting letters from the studio so we'll, we'll go to a break but of course you'll be back later in the day and i'll be chatting with you tomorrow yeah tomorrow not friday i do believe but certainly tomorrow here at tnt thank you dean we'll be back after this break CNT Radio's Joe Hoff. Just a terrible situation there, and Biden was behind it pushing these arms, pushing billions of dollars over there. We don't know where that money went. I'll bet you money. I'll bet you a huge percent uh, went, to, I bet you more than 50% didn't go to the uh, to the people or to the war. Uh, it went to people's pockets, kind of like what we have in, in uh, Palestine. Uh, with the U.S. Since, since well, under Biden, uh, Trump shut this down, thank God, but under Biden, Obama, they started sending billions over to uh, that part of the world these people are have been after israel forever and and uh, supported by iran and billions of dollars going their way and uh, to help them uh, you know basically uh create chaos in the middle east terrorism and and we saw what happened earlier this year about a month ago uh, the two went attack in israel and the death and destruction rape and kidnapping more than 240 people kidnapped joe hoft on today's news talk radio tnt God's truth is enduringly true throughout all the generations. It transcends culture. The church is always going to be an embattled people. If it's swimming with the tide, it's not being the church of Jesus Christ. Look to the past, learn from the past, because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called. The entire state of California ordered to stay at home. That's 40 California has some of the strictest policies leveled against churches. Gavin Newsom's executive order threatens jail time and a $1,000 a day fine. Government that stopping people from going to church, Dr. Fauci. When I went into the White House, when I sat in on the task force meetings, was a shocking level of gross incompetence. The mortality rate from the virus was 0.2%. You know, 99.8% survival, rather than the three or 4% mortality that the, the people are saying at the time. The culture and the understanding of the people of Grace Church has always been, not only do you obey government, but you honor government. Thousands of people in the streets, but you can't have church. The hypocrisy of letting people riot 
It helped us all understand one thing. This is not what they say it is. By meeting, we're testifying the government has no jurisdiction here. I was arrested and driven to a maximum security prison. The government has obviously uh, turned up the heat on churches. My daddy. <laughs> when the churches fall silent, the only religion left is the state. We needed to make a biblical statement because we always put ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. L.A. County threatened Pastor John MacArthur with jail time and arrest. We were going to be sued. They wanted Grace Church shut down. We wanted to go on the offensive and attack the health order as unconstitutional. This wasn't about health and safety. This was all about control and opposition to religious freedom. As the government gets more corrupt and more corrupt, snitches get rewards. Its totalitarian control has to increase. And you have to have a mask on. And as they shut down any attacks against them, this is not about freedom or personal choice. The last thing standing is going to be the church. Internet. Internet. A stream online. TNTradio.live. Today's News Talk Radio. TNT. And welcome back to today's News Talk TNT. Um, uh, the online chat's going ballistic. Dean, you would think a helicopter pilot would not be stupid enough to take illegal drugs, then fly an aircraft. We would certainly hope that is the case. Uh, Kevin, we've also got Chris uh, uh, Jethro writes the... They only refused to take the vax. They didn't refuse to give it to others. Thank you for that one. Uh, who else have we got in there? I think we got Chris has written, they are already preparing to blame the myocarditis deaths on a new variant and pushing more poison. The act they actually hide. <laughs> I can't say that word. Um, and Chris also suggesting that they have murdered 17 to 20 million people across the globe. And that, that doctor that I referred to earlier, the one who suggested in a post that everybody who had received as little as one mRNA injection would die within three to five years. And no, I don't concur with that at all. I certainly hope that's not the case. As well was uh, was Dr. and I've got her name up here, Dr. Dolores Cahill was the one who said that. I don't think she's a doctor anymore. I think she's been struck off. But um, again, even if that was correct, I don't think it's helpful to probably say that at this point. But then again, you could argue that those that make uh, early... Uh, you know, assumptions that tend to be true, I'm not saying this tends to be true, that do come to be true, um, are those who can say, I told you so, and possibly people look at them more closely as to uh, what they might get right or wrong. I don't know. I'm going to talk to a doctor that always gets it right, Dr. Claire Craig right now, the co-chair of the Heart Group. Which she's a diagnostic pathologist. She has been a pathologist since 2001, working with the NHS, specialising in cancer diagnostics. She is also the uh, lead uh, research and development projects at Genomics Genomics England. And we're going to be talking about excess deaths over in Ireland, I think, at the moment. Hello, Claire. How are you? Hello. I'm I'm good, thank you. I, I would say that I don't always get things right, but I do try to admit when I get it wrong. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would have to admit that even, you know, if, if I was a doctor and I believed that was the case, that which I shared by Dr. Dolores uh, Cahill, I mean, I, I don't think I'd, I'd be game enough to put that out there. A, if you get that kind of 
thing wrong, no one's ever going to take you seriously again. And it just creates a bunch of panic that you don't really need. Yeah, and I think, I mean, you've just given two examples there of really extreme hyperbole. The other one being the 17 million plus deaths caused by the vaccine, which um, that's based on a study where essentially they assumed every excess death after the vaccine rollout was due to the vaccine. And you think, you think, well, you know, this is just doing what the other side do, you know, that you can't, if you do a modeling study and you make a massive assumption, then you can come up with a big number, but that's not reality. You have to kind of ground yourself in reality. You do. And you, you need that data. I mean, there's one thing that speaks the truth that cannot lie, that cannot be bribed or, or convinced to do otherwise is actual, real, reliable data. And of course, the data currently suggesting that Ireland during the pandemic had no excess deaths to, to speak of. Yeah. So this is from the OECD. So they've done a recalculated the sums for 2020 and 2021. And what they've done is um, factored in the fact that Ireland has quite a massively aging population. So from 2016 up to 2022, there were 22% more over 65 year olds. So clearly the number of deaths you're going to expect in that population is going to be going up quite rapidly. And that is what we saw. Um, however, there are, you know, there are different ways of looking at death data and you think death data ought to be pretty cut and dry. You know, you've got a body count, right? That should be one thing you can really hang your hat on. But unfortunately, it's not ever quite that straightforward. And it depends what you make as your assumption about how many deaths there ought to have been. And so the EU statistics body, they've done all of their sums based on an average of what happened between 2016 and 2019. And when they do that, Ireland come out as the second worst up to 2023 in terms of excess mortality. Oddly, Finland are the worst, which I think is a bit unexpected. But they, they said that when they do the sums that way, you get this huge figure of Ireland. And when OECD does the sums with like the other extreme, you get nothing happening at all. And I think the truth probably lies somewhere in between. Um, so if you look at a sort of age, you can, what you can do is you can take how many deaths, but figure it out by how many people there are in each age group in the population. So it's an age adjusted mortality rate. And then what you see is it was it was unexpectedly low in 2019. So that means you've already got a situation where you've got people who got away with it for a year who are probably likely to die the following year. And then in 2020, it kind of came back to expected levels. But since July 2021, it does seem to have been higher by by really quite a number of different ways of measuring this. There does seem to have been a problem subsequently, which, of course, is what we've seen really across the world in, in vaccinated countries, is that there's been an excess mortality problem since the vaccine rollout. Yeah, I was going to say what you said didn't surprise me. I mean, I couldn't see any reason why the Irish data should be, you know, so far out from the rest of the world, considering they did pretty much the same as most of the rest of the world. But you were always going to get one country that had uh, a bit of an anomalous reading or a couple. But across the bigger, longer period, they're pretty much right where the rest of us are, I would imagine, yeah? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think the, the other key point about this story really is what happened early on. You can sort of take it into two timeframes. So what was going on in 2020 and 2021? And, you know, this, the story was that there was a pandemic. 
Now, pandemic is a very, very powerful word that should not be bandied about without great care. And in fact, maybe, you know, maybe it's hard to say that it ever should have been bandied about at all. But the, the definition for a pandemic was changed by the WHO in 2009. So it went from a situation where you would have to have large numbers of deaths in the young. That was the critical point that made something a pandemic. And they just removed it. They removed it completely. And in fact, they removed the need for any excess mortality from their definition. And the definition became based entirely on the spread of a virus or the spread of a disease. You're like, well, there's all sorts of viruses out there all of the time that are spreading around the world. And if you go on and hunt for them, which is what the WHO are now planning to do by getting everyone who's in the WHO committed to constantly searching for these viruses, then you'll find a virus that looks novel and you'll be able to declare a pandemic even when there's no expectation of a problem with mortality. And that's a really, really big issue because there's this huge disconnect between what the WHO are calling a pandemic and what people's reaction to that word continues to be as if there would be massive mortality. And the fact is in Ireland, you know, they had, they had a wave of COVID deaths, right? The, the, as we saw elsewhere, but they had it on the background of a previous year where there weren't so many deaths, and the overall outcome was, you know, a predicted sort of an expected number of deaths in 2020. And even in places where we saw more deaths in 2020, they were not so many more than you wouldn't have seen in bad influenza years of the past. So, you know, it's comparable to a bad influenza year, um, you know, as in a seasonal bad influenza year where we have done nothing about it. And so, this is a really, really big issue. And there, is, there are some people who've claimed that the island did very well because their public health was better than everyone else's, right? That's the claim. Um, now, so the, they're saying that their lockdown was the reason they had a lower mortality in 2020. Now, lockdown was meant to slow the spread. Nobody was claiming that lockdown cured disease. Lockdown was meant to slow the spread. And yet the peak of deaths from COVID in Ireland was exactly the same time as in Sweden, as in the UK, as in everywhere else, because it didn't slow the spread, because it peaks at that time of year normally. And we've seen it, you know, it's easy to say that now because it's really clear from the data, because we've had the whole of 2022 and into 2023, where we've seen these natural waves of COVID, where nobody's behaving differently to before, and they peak in January, in April, in July, and in October. That's the pattern. And they peak naturally. And sometimes they skip one of those seasons, but that's what you can predict would happen. And that is what happened in 2020. And none of this nonsense around lockdowns is had an impact because it's an airborne disease that goes a long distance in aerosols through the air. There certainly is nothing like a little bit of perspective, and you've just given a whole bunch of it to that particular subject. I've got a bunch more questions to ask you, Dr. Claire Craig, on the other side of this short news headlines. If you could stick around, that would be ter terrific. All right, we'll be back here at TNT right after this short break. TNT Radio News. Bring the news. Matt Boyland here with your TNT headlines. The White House has gone on the offensive, trying to convince Americans that President Biden is working hard to combat the immigration crisis plaguing the country. 
Israel has rejected a new deal tabled by Hamas that would have established a long-term ceasefire in exchange for hostages held by the group. And Russia has launched a fresh wave of airstrikes on Ukraine just days after carrying out its biggest aerial bombardment of the country since the war began. We're the pinup boys and poster girls for free speech. We just don't look as impressive as Vladimir Putin shirtless on a horse. Yeah. 24 7, 365. We never stop sifting fact from fiction, misinformation from the truth. From government overreach to the latest on mandates, big tech censorship to propaganda gone mad. Listen to TNT Radio and get the news and views direct from our expert presenters and commentators anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's News Talk. This is TNT Radio. And welcome back. We're with Dr. Claire Craig, co-chair of the Heart H-A-R-T group and is also a diagnostic pathologist. Something that uh, Claire just told me um, and then I had heard before, but is really horrific and it hit me probably harder than the first time I heard it is we sold this whole thing. We convinced people to go and get vaccinated to extend their arm, if not if they weren't coerced uh, by a method of fear. Of course, that fear was primarily because of the word pandemic and what people historically knew that it meant. And here you are telling me that I think it was in 2009, the WHO changed the very definition of that, something where people assumed a large amount of children would die. And hence, why wouldn't you go and get this vaccine to protect the kids? And that was the belief that they were under. And why didn't anybody in the media, do you remember anybody in the mainstream media drawing anybody's attention to that? No, not not at all. I mean, there was a like, this all happened around the swine flu um, episode of 2009 that was labelled a pandemic very shortly after their change of definition and which resulted in um, a massive sales of vaccines that had had very little testing. Um, the UK bought 132 million doses and we gave six, um, six million to mostly children and pregnant women and with consequences, there's you know we had hundreds of teenagers end up with lifelong disabilities with narcolepsy as a result of that because they weren't thoroughly tested vaccines, and so there was this almost there was a playbook about how these things went, and it was just repeated in exactly the same way for this time round only at scale and with this huge amount of fear propaganda, um, and you know and could be repeated again. That's the scary bit. Yeah. Do you, what do you think the likelihood of most people, um, what percentages did you have? I think we were upwards, well, we, we were told, I don't believe, but we were told we were upwards of 90, probably around 94% here in Australia of people who did get at least one or two vaccines. What was the percentages over in the UK? Yeah, we're, we're told similar, but I don't, I don't believe it. So if you're going to work out what percentage of population have been vaccinated, you need to know how many people live here. And I don't think we have a good grip on how many people live in any country. It's a really difficult thing to measure a population. And what happened over time is that we saw people would come and get tested positive for COVID that didn't exist in the data. So you've got this constant stream of people coming in who are sort of not linked to any data set and the number of people then sort of grows as they come forward. And same for the vaccinations themselves, actually, as the vaccination rollout happened, 
the denominator and the size of the population had to grow to fit in all these people who were vaccinated. And so for some age groups, we had more people vaccinated in certain regions, so 70 year olds particularly, than apparently existed. And so when you've got that situation, you can basically make up how many unvaccinated people there are and make all the data for the unvaccinated in terms of per 100,000 people look horrific because you just put, you know, you just say, well, there's only a handful of them. It must be awful. And so then all of the data gets distorted by that. Yeah, it really is horrific that they can do that and get away with it. I mean, I wasn't even aware um, uh, until you just told me about the swine flu and the uh, amount of children and probably pregnant mothers who were affected by that. Um, and was that immediately afterwards or was that based on long term studies of those people over the last 14 or so years? I mean, that that's actually that's one aspect of it that is that's quite sobering, which is that the you know, the 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 virus was 2009. The vaccines were 2009 into 2010. It took until 2013 before Public Health England admitted that we had a problem with narcolepsy in the UK. And then it took till 2020 before they said, okay, we've measured this properly now. 10 years it took to measure it properly. And, you know, that was with no political pressure and none of the kind of, you know, the pressures that they're currently under didn't exist. It still took 10 years to actually get a proper measure to do it. Yeah. And so I think we're sort of on that a similar time frame, I think, frankly, that, you know, things are going to come out very slowly. Yeah. And again, um, I think 10 years is it's not just a number that you would go for based on medical history you know, being historically how long you would wait. Just a common sense aspect, you know, from most people who have no medical background would think, yeah, I think 10 years or, you know, 14 years, possibly, you know, a generation would be about the right amount of time to establish whether something is safe or not. Just that other point that you said you didn't believe in the numbers and how many people were vaccinated as a percentage of the overall population. I mean, here in Australia, they'd have us believe it was well and truly upwards of 90%. That being the case, I must have, I must know and have met every single one of that other 6% because it is, in, in my reckoning, and I, my numbers are pretty good off, you know, the, the pub test numbers, I would put it at about 65, maybe 64%. And I think, you know, that'd be more on, on par with what happened. Yeah, there was one um, documentary that the BBC did about the vaccine. And as part of that documentary, they did a, a, you know, a proper survey of the population to ask their vaccine status. And the raw results from that were that 25% were unvaccinated. And they modelled them and said, oh, no, it, it's about what we thought it was before. But I think probably 25% is about right. It was very much a peer pressure move. If you were to think, you know, you were one of 25 or 30 percent, you'd be quite comfortable with your decision not to have got vaccinated. But if you think oh, I'm one of the three remaining percent, there mm -hmm. must be something wrong with me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that I'm sure there was, you know, even if that wasn't intentionally created, that data it was certainly used to that effect. Yeah, that certainly is the case. Um, I, I just hope that moving forward and with all the uh, that the WHO has been up to with pandemic treaties and whatnot, I would hope that there's not uh, this isn't going to be something we have to contend with at some point in the future. Based on what you've seen and what you know, do you think they could possibly pull this thing off in any way, shape or form similar to what happened over the last four years? I think that's a, I think they can. I think they can. So I think a lot of people have said to me, there's no way we could lock down again. And I think that's definitely been true for COVID. I don't think you could politically get away with it. 
But if you come up with some new story about something else, then I think people absolutely would go for that again, which is which is really terrifying. And I, I'm not sure what we do about it. And in the meantime, the WHO were explicitly gearing up for more. You know, they they keep talking about it. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to hunt for viruses, and they're trying to um, gain power in terms of you know all these the treaty and everything. They could getting themselves into a position whereby they have international law that will say, you know, that you have to do this and you have to do that. And lawyers will say to me, well, yeah, but that, that doesn't actually work. You know, you can always just ignore international bodies. And there might be some truth in that. But politically, it's quite hard to ignore a WHO who is saying you have to do this when most of the world are then going along with it. And that becomes very, very difficult politically. So even if it's not a legal requirement, the pressure that that creates it's important enough to say that should not be allowed to happen. The WHO should not be given the, the power to do that, to say those things. I just hope that our population, not just in the UK, but across the world, is smart enough to uh, have a big resounding no to the WHO. And with people out there spreading the truth, such as yourself, Dr. Claire Craig, I very much appreciate that you've come on today and very much appreciate that you've had the guts to do everything uh, and you follow your heart and and logic and common sense and all those things that's, that were forgotten over the last four years and you have all those gifts in abundance and we thank you again. Thank you, Dean. Everybody, coming up after the break, we're going to be talking to Nina Jane Patel and all you have to do is stick around. This is TNT. The challenges our planet's animals are facing sometimes feel a bit heavy. The animals haven't eaten in a day, two days, they haven't drank anything, they're cold, they're dehydrated. As soon as we started our descent, everywhere I could see was mud, just absolutely mud. So the country has been prolonged for drought so long, it was like a tinderbox waiting to go up. Okay, very heavy. Each of us wants to be part of the solution, and we can be. Remember that there's good happening right now. At home. All right, we were able to get into your unit, and we have all four of your cats. So, uh, uh, okay. And around the world. For any animal in any disaster. So let's focus on that, right? Be part of the solution. One rescue at a time. Search ifa.org forward slash disaster ready. Hi, I'm Smokey Bear, and I made an assistant to help you out because only you can prevent wildfires. Hey, Assistant Smokey Bear, call me Papa Bear because I'm grilling up dinner. <laughs> do you get it? Yes, good job. So what should I do with all these coals? Don't just toss them out. Put them in a metal container because those embers can start a wildfire. I understand. The stakes are high. Ha, 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 ha. See, Smokey thinks I'm funny. This is the Dean Mackin Show on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. And welcome back to the program. Something I feel immensely um, uh, comfortable talking about is tech because I've been into tech since I was 12 years old. I had Australia's largest bulletin board. I had an internet company when I was 24. So I know all about tech and I understand it. But some things that we have to keep on the lookout for is how tech can be used adversely and certainly against children. My next guest, Nina Jane Patel, is a researcher, a futurist, a thought leader and Interpol uh, metaverse expert uh, with her evidence-based insights into current transformative 
techno, techno, sorry, technological uh, evolution. She's um, gone through some prominent stages like London Tech Week, London AI Summit, the uh, Digilog in Istanbul and Silicon Valley, and uh, comes to the UK. Someone who knows all about this, and I'm very much looking forward to chatting with her. Nina, Jane Patel, hello. Hello. Thanks for having me today, Dean. Thank you. Now, I've got to, I would love for you to explain to me. Now, we've heard about this new thing. It's a phrase I've never heard before, this virtual rape of this young girl. Um, some people are going to be, can you have a virtual rape? Is that a thing? Can you please explain? Um, I don't know how detailed we can go or not, but um, explain what happened and is that the correct terminology that we should be looking at? Certainly, I expect we'll be hearing it for a long time. Well, we don't know the exact details of this young girl's experience that she had in a social virtual um, environment. But what we can imagine is that she put on a virtual reality headset that's available to consumers around the world, uh, selected her avatar and entered a virtual world where um, it was advertised she could meet with friends and family and have some fun engaging in new and exciting ways. And then what I can only imagine is in some capacity, um, male avatars or male representing avatars with male voices surrounded her uh, and proceeded to sexually harass her and then sexually assault her avatar and then proceed to sexually rape her avatar. Uh, whether we consider that a legitimate claim or not is a question that we have to decide uh, as a society in the context of is it real or is it not? It's certainly going to set some very interesting precedents and uh, not just precedents as to whether uh, somebody is guilty of something or not, but certainly the the way it is perceived. Uh, and if someone is found guilty of what is now considered, well, the new term virtual rape, I mean, what will be the consequences? What will be the jail sentences if it gets to that? Well, this is all new territory for everyone involved, including the police doing these investigations. Um, it will come to the courts potentially if there is sufficient evidence. Um, and it is a question we have to answer is a, in the context of a world where we're entering into the metaverse where the lines between our virtual world and the physical world are continually blurring. And we're asking people to engage in these social virtual environments for work, for play, for all aspects of their lives. Then we have to provide safe, secure environments for them to engage in. And if if we're suggesting that children are going to be experiencing trauma in the, in these environments, then we have to take this very seriously. Yeah. Now, what we need to explain. See, Nina, you and I know we've we've worn a virtual headset. We understand just how convincing it can be. And when they say virtual reality, they really do mean reality. It's hard. You could sit there. I've done it in a flight simulator. I've done it race in a race car. I've done it uh, watching a movie where I've got people sitting around me in a virtual cinema. And I literally, after just a short period of time, believe that I am there. Therefore, the consequences of anything when you are experiencing something that your brain perceives to be real, one would argue would have the same consequences long term to your psyche if you were abused in that environment. Absolutely. The evidence shows that the body, the physiological responses to those experiences that you've had as a flight simulator or others who've had roller coasters or, or gaming activities, the adrenaline pumps, the heart rate increases. And just as a, a positive experience is, uh, is fun, a negative experience is, is equally negative and can cause trauma physiologically and psychologically, especially when we're talking about children and young people. 
Now, I don't have the data. I've only got my own intuition to go by. And um, again, someone that's been involved in IT since they were a young kid. But most, I would guess that most of the young people, and they are primarily young people who are buying these headsets, would probably be a little bit more likely to be male, are probably using them to play games. And especially with the males, I would imagine, are not going to go to Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse. And that's certainly the case of my son, who has the new MetaQuest 3. I've worn one. I know exactly what it's about. And uh, I guess we should also tell people, um, Nina, about augmented reality, where it takes it a step further. And um, I, I understand it, but I'll let you do it because it, it, this is your time. Yeah, it's we're entering into a new domain. And what we're seeing is a clash of cultures where virtual reality has been in existence for decades now and has been engaged in ways for gaming and other aspects of society and driven uh, for a return on uh, investments and, and money is being made in areas of society that we perhaps really don't want to know. But in this context, what we're inviting young people into these spaces, it's now consumer accessible on the mainstream level. It was under many Christmas trees, headsets were under Christmas trees around the world this year. And what we're seeing really is uh, a clash of cultures where certain behaviors were were allowed and permitted, uh, encouraged, rewarded. And now we're in, in inviting young girls into these areas and, we're, and are being um, engaged in activities such as assault, such as harassment and such as as rape in extreme cases. And so what we have to take care of is, is, is not to assume that these behaviors are permissible and, and we can't we shouldn't be holding people accountable if, if this is where we're heading to in the future, where we're blurring the lines between the physical world and the virtual world. Now, some could argue, and I'd be one of them, that I didn't think Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse was going to take off quite the way that he thought. Uh, the numbers so far would would say that's true. You could also counter-argue that these, these new headsets could be a game changer because of the augmented reality and just how realistic they are. Um, and again, for people that don't know what augmented real reality is, you're sitting in your room, you're looking at your own room, and then all of a sudden parts of your wall are breaking down and aliens are crawling through holes in your own room. I mean, it, it uses your own, um, you know, your own environment and adds to it and it can block out people or show people and because of that i've i've got to want do you see this mark zuckerberg's metaverse taking off the way that he intends it do you see that working i do believe that the technology is not going to go away there are aspects of it that are very useful the technology has huge potential to unlock education healthcare, and other aspects of industries, um, and it, it's doing so already. And so the technology, in, although it is still in a nascent stage, will be continually developed. And we can see that by the amount of the trillions that are being invested into research and development of this technology, that is not going to go away. And this wasn't one man's dream of a future. This is an entire industry being built and, and um, being designed for us. And at this early stage, we really do need to come together as a society. It takes a village to raise a child. It also takes a village to raise a child in the metaverse. And we cannot underestimate the power of this technology, the level in which it's going to integrate into a child's life. Look, Dean, this technology is not designed for you and I. We're way beyond the years of, of how it's really going to integrate into our lives. It's the child born today, the 10-year-old today, who's really going to be impacted by this technology. It's going to integrate into their lives in ways that we cannot yet under, um, comprehend. 
Uh, and so to take it lightly is a, a huge flaw in the plan. And we really do need to take responsibility today in order to secure a safe and responsible future and avoid the dystopian future that we're all afraid of. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, a, you're going to be very busy over the next few years with all of this coming up. And you did mention, you know, the village or the global village that we now live in. And just as per any village, you wouldn't take your eyes off your kids for too long. At some point, we're going to have to see some technology that lets parents sit over there with either another pair of these things or maybe just a window on their computer, their mobile phone that lets us see what our kids are seeing in real time. Exactly. So oh, I hope that technology comes out anyway. So um, where do you see legally, where do you see the future of VR headsets? Do you think they're going to prosper just because technology often does? Or do you think they're going to be so, it's like drones. You know, if you owned a drone back in the early days, people were going and, you know, flying them, uh, having them hover and watching planes land around airports. Now you can't even launch a drone within five or 10 kilometers of an airport. Do you see that the restrictions will be that restrictive that people go, hey, what's the point of having one of these? Well, I think in the context of this technology and the positive aspects of it, virtual reality in the context of the metaverse is, is several different components of technology coming together and coming to fruition to build this vision of the metaverse where we're moving seamlessly between the virtual world and the physical world. We're no longer depending on our smart devices in our pockets or our laptops, but it's on a, a light set of hardware, potentially at a contact lens in our eyes. All of that kind of sci-fi future is coming. Uh, and so the technology is, is, is not going to go away and it's going to be integrating into our lives and capacities that we don't yet understand. Um, I think there will be uh, regulations required. Look, we're already talking about that in the context here in the UK, the Online Safety Act and how that can influence some of the conversations about law enforcement uh, around particularly this case and others as well around financial crimes and other uh, you know, similar bullying and harassment that we see on the 2D internet and how that can translate into the 3D internet where we're immersed presence and fully embodied as digital representations of ourselves from the top of our head to the tip of our toes. And it feels very real because the technology was designed to replace reality, to alter all reality. And we cannot underestimate that at this time. So I don't think that it'll go away. It'll be essential in work environments. It'll be essential in healthcare environments. It'll be essential in the education system as well. And we want to empower people to be able to use it for positive aspects. We can't take it away uh, and have it just be um, used for negative aspects of society. And, and, and um, we have to mitigate uh, the negative aspects and the crime that could happen in the metaverse and, and prepare for it and learn from the mistakes that we made with the Internet, because we made many mistakes with the Internet. And we need to look back and learn how to best prevent uh, and, and prioritize safe, uh, responsible use of the technology specifically for children and young people. Yeah, and it would be a shame to see such a wonderful bit of technology, you know, be canned or put on the shelf just because mm -hmm. there are a very small percentage of the population who have to or feel that they need to abuse it. Now, you are on the cutting edge of all of this. And of course, the level of reality that we now find ourselves will get better and better with the increased resolution, whatever. Are there other aspects of this technology that you see kicking in where you can literally feel it in parts of your body? Or do you think in the future we, will, we, we won't be able to determine reality from a, some sort of headset? Yeah, sensory input is certainly on the horizon and already being implemented into many gaming environments. Haptic technology, 
uh, in the pornography industry. We're also seeing a rise on teledildonics, so perhaps we won't go on to on this show today, Dean, but there's a lot of sensory stimulation that be, can be incorporated into a virtual reality experience. And fueling that with the kind of the ecosystem of the metaverse, which includes blockchain technology, AI, the internet of things, uh, biometrics and measuring our physiological responses and generating real time responses based on our physical, uh, physiological outputs and using that data to design better experiences for us, responding in real time. The capabilities of the technology in the next five to 10 years, we're going to see exponentially increase and become better and become very compelling. Uh, and, and we will want to spend our time in these environments and be interested by it. And there'll be uh, industries built upon this, just like there was with the internet. Uh, and we must take responsibility for how we develop it together as a society in combination with government and regulators, law enforcement, as well as the technology platforms themselves because, and communities, families, individuals as well, who take responsibility for how they use their digital spaces as well. So that it's no longer uh, just a like that's thrown out there or, or a comment, but actually this is a representation of our world. And if you think about all that data on the internet right now, and if you give it to an AI, it doesn't see the best part of humanity, what we're showing the internet right now. And what we need to do is begin to bring our best selves into our digital engagement and bring AI and all that data along with humanity into a, a positive future. And I know that sounds very kind of um, science fiction oriented and futuristic oriented, but that's where we're at today. We are responsible for the future world that my children, your children and their children will be, be uh, integrating into their lives in the future. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's good that we're getting to uh, to get all the, all of this sorted out now while this is in its infancy. I would say it's only the fact that these things have been historically cost prohibitive that have kept them out of every house They in years to come. And they're already down to sub $1,000 Australian, which is, I don't know what they are over in the States or whatever. I would guess about five, four or $500 for a VR headset now, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're consumer accessible and they will continue to be more uh, accessible in price. The hardware is is going to become lighter. It's going to become easier to use. The uh, hand controllers are going to become easier to use and it will become more seamless and it will be easily accessible. And everyone, just like we did with the internet, will slowly come on board. Look, you remember that no one wanted to put their credit card online when the, you yeah. know, the first kind of e-commerce websites come out. And now we do it without the blink of an eye, without the second thought. And so we stand here looking over a precipice thinking perhaps being very skeptical and that it's never going to happen. But look at where we've come in the past 20 years. And we have to be prepared for the next 20 years uh, because they are laying the foundation for uh, a world that blurs the line between the virtual world and the physical world and becomes one. Yeah, and that's certainly not an exaggeration. And for anybody who thinks it is, I would implore them to go down to their local technology store, put one of these things on their head, and they will just be absolutely blown away. A question that I have to ask you, um, do you have one of these in your own household and do you use it yourself? I mean, obviously, I know you have to use it as part of your job, but just for your own enjoyment, do you tend to have one that you use? I use this technology, virtual reality, AI, all of these new technologies with intention and purpose. I have a clear goal and objective of why I want to use the technology and I use it for that. So we could talk about that as research. I can also talk about that within the education system. Um, and part of that is about, you know, designing field trips that take children who wouldn't be able to access museums or parts of the world that they wouldn't otherwise. And that's a big 
positive feature, or you can visit your doctor in virtual reality and they can measure your signals through your uh, wearable devices in real time while you're still sitting in your home. The capabilities of the technology are significant. And yes, today I do use it, but I use it intentionally and purposefully. And I don't rely and I don't engage on social virtual environments where I don't know who the other people are in the room. Well, Nina, what I would love to do is chat with you again about the positive aspects of the technology because you're right across it. I very much appreciate you coming on here today. We're out of time, unfortunately. Nina Jane Patel, thank you so much for your time today here at TNT. Thank you very much. Good to see you, Dean. You too. Everybody stick around. Katie Hopkins coming up next here at today's News Talk TNT. Thanks, Nina.